Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back to the Lynx Golf Podcast. This is Al Lunsford, digital editor at Lynx. Joined today by our friends, we've got GP and JP on the line with us today. So JP being Joe Passoff, as always with us. And then today we welcome back George Pepper. GP, good to see you. I know I just saw you in person recently. Glad you're doing well. Uh, The reason being that we're having you on here is that... (laughs) Maybe we'll hold off a second as he answers the phone. It's quickly, quickly spiraled into pure chaos. <laughs> okay, he's uh, back. Sorry about that. That was my phone going off. But you we still got the, still got the landline. Yep, we're good. Okay, perfect. Uh, George, welcome back to the podcast. Hope you're doing well. How are things in your world? Uh, except for frenetic phone calls at the last minute, I am in great shape. Thank you so much. Good to be with you guys as, as always. <laughs> Of course, and uh, today we'll we'll talk through the winter 2023 issue of Links. Our next issue coming out here shortly. Uh, we just finished the close, so it should be in homes um, once this airs. I think we're looking at February, uh, just about the beginning of February. You'll, the, right. Our subscribers will have that in homes. Um, we'll talk through George's column. We'll talk through a couple of other features in the magazine. Joe Passoff's column, uh, Paragon where he talks about the the most and best of a certain category uh, of our choosing. But um, let's start at the beginning. Joe, uh, or excuse me, George, uh, what was your column for this issue? Can you give us a, a breakdown of everything? You yeah, about? sure. Well, the title is uh, Gentle on My Mind. And um, readers, or in this case, listeners of a certain age, uh, myself and Joe included, but not you, Al, you were you're way too young, uh, can recall the era when uh, of George H.W. Bush was president. That's 41, not 43. Uh, this goes back to the late 1980s. And what I'm talking about specifically was a, uh, a camp- campaign speech he made calling for, quote, a kinder, gentler America. Now, in thinking back on those words, it occurred to me that although he was talking about American society in general, he could just as well have been talking about golf courses. Uh, because at that time, a sort of perfect storm of forces had converged to spawn a uh, succession of decidedly unkind and ungentle places to play. And uh, interestingly, a similar thing is going on now uh, in, in the opposite direction. But back in the late 80s, there was a, uh, number one, a sustained bull market that had spurred the construction of hundreds of of golf courses, many of them for uh, second homes, vacation homes, retirement communities. And many of these had the uh, unspecified championship golf course. Nobody ever explained quite that what that was, except from the back tees, it was really long and really hard. So number one, that was going on. <clears throat> Over the same period, um, there were, for the first time in quite a while, market improvements in golf equipment. I can remember because I was being firmly into middle age at the time and, and had lost some of my uh, youthful strength and vigor. And I was ve- very glad to see that uh, drivers in particular and golf balls uh, were giving us all lots more uh, distance. The metal wood had come along. Uh, the, uh, at that time, I guess it was uh, both Spalding and Titleist making pretty hot balls. Now the Proofy one has taken over. But uh, longer the longest hitters got the biggest boost out of this uh, boon. And the result was that uh, courses had to be stretched to accommodate. So that was going on, that's two factors. During the same time, um, a couple of guys rose to prominence uh, in the architecture world. Uh, One of them was Pete Dye, who'd shown he knew how to test the best golfers, whether it was uh, a taut little test like Harbortown or a big long one like Oak Tree. 
in Oklahoma. The, and uh, he, was, he was doing his thing. The, the other man who's, uh, was a guy whose attention guy attracted, and that was sort of an architect himself, uh, sort of a broader architect, uh, Dean Beeman, the visionary uh, commissioner of the PGA Tour. And Beeman had hatched this idea for a, a series of tournament player courses. Uh, big, bold arenas there where the pros built specifically for the pros and by the pros. And <clears throat> Dye was the guy who started it all with TPC at Sawgrass. And I remember I was there at the opening of that uh, golf course at that original design of the TPC Sawgrass was perhaps the hardest golf course ever built. Uh, I remember Jack Nicholas saying something about uh, that it, he'd never been very good landing a five iron on, on the front fender of a Dodge or something like that. The greens were impossible to hit and hold. I played uh, that day with the late uh, Bert Yancey, and he may have played better than anyone that day. I think he hit 14 greens and he shot 82. Uh, so they were just as hard to putt as they were to hold. And so Dye's credo was, you know, golf isn't fair, so why should a golf course be? So he was creating this whole uh, attitude. And of course, the TPC courses back in those days were always designed in collaboration with a tour pro. And so this spawned a whole new generation of architects. Nicholas was probably the first and foremost, but Arnold Palmer was in there, Gary Player, Tom Weisskopf, Crenshaw, Davis Love, Nick Fowler, Greg Norman, they all got into the business of golf course architecture. And these guys were used to tackling long, tough golf courses. I think they transferred very often, transferred that sensibility to their own designs. So you've got three things going on. You've got this, all these new golf courses being built, new difficult courses. You've got the improvements in equipment, lengthening the ball, ergo lengthening the golf courses. And you've got this peak die TPC ergo going on. The fourth factor, and maybe the worst of it, was the uh, two major golf magazines, Golf Digest and Golf Magazine. And they fanned the flames with their very influential course rankings. Uh, I mean, Golf Digest first uh, list appeared back in 1966, and it touted not the best, but the toughest 200 golf courses in America. And uh, Golf Digest, I, I'm guilty of this because I was the one who did it. We were the first to actually uh, rank golf courses numerically from one to a hundred instead of groups of 10 as Golf Digest had. And result of all that, I think, was that developers and architects were, were all trying to uh, one-up each other in a quest to create a golf course that would rank as high as possible on the top 100 list. And in those days, that meant very much a difficult, long, impressive golf course. So there you have it. All of these things were converging uh, to a pipeline of golf courses that were pretty hard. Now, 35 years later, here we are. And I think it would be very hard uh, to make an argument that our society in general is any kinder or gentler than it was in 1988, except maybe for the fact that you, Al, are now part of America and you weren't then, and you were a kind of gentle guy. But basically, uh, we're no better, if not worse, than we were back then. But I, I do, do see some hope in the golf course world. And it's, I think, because of the same perfect storm of forces, all of which seem to have made sort of U-turns. I mean, the course building boom ground to a halt a couple of decades ago when developers realized very painfully that demand wasn't what it had seemed to be. Uh, you remember, these were the days when we were building a course a day. And now if we come out with 20 new golf courses a year, it's a big deal. Uh, today, as, as you know, the world's economy is struggling, uh, our natural environment is increasingly threatened. And the, the new courses today that have the best chance of survival are those with low maintenance budgets, meaning fewer acres of terrain, needing water and tending. And that, that translates to shorter, faster running, more sustainable courses, the kind that are really friendlier to the average player. So that's a good thing. Meanwhile, the USGA and the RNA at last seem to be bringing equipment under control. I, I don't think uh, we're going to see back tees of 8,000 yards. Uh, and in fact, 
uh, I think many of the rank and file golfers now are sort of embracing this play it forward concept uh, and moving up to a shorter set of markers without guilt or shame. So that's happening. And architecturally, the Pete Dye era is over. Uh, in its place, we have a new breed of designers. Some of them are what they call disciples, but with a softer touch. And some of them are minimalists. And almost none of them are tour pros. The, the odd rare exception is Tiger Woods. And interestingly, he's become one of the leaders uh, along with David McClay Kidd, Mike DeVries, Rob Collins, and Tad King uh, of a movement toward more playable courses where the keynote is increased width rather than length. Um, in contrast to the die mantra, uh, I think the consensus that's emerging now is that golf is hard enough without making the playing field add to the difficulty. And finally, and maybe most importantly, again, the magazines seem to have cooled their jets a bit. I think if you, and Joe can speak to this, uh, being another guy who's handled golf magazine's top 100 list. But I think if, if you look at the list today and compare them to the list of say 40 years ago, you find them populated by uh, fewer, what I call brutish tests. Uh, for every one of these big hard golf courses that's found its way onto the rankings in the last few decades, there's at least one other course, either a new design uh, that is more welcoming and fun or a restoration of a cozy old golf course from the golden era uh, where playability and, and fun are paramount. So, um, but really the most uh, refreshing development that I've seen in the last couple of years is something called the 147 Custodians. And it's the creation of yet another steward of Golf Magazine's top 100 list, the current one, Rand Morissette. But it's not part of Golf Magazine. It's in the uh, website, uh, golfclubatlas.com, which, as many of the listeners know, is kind of a uh, hub for golf architecture and enthusiasts that uh, Morissette uh, founded back in 1999. Um, and this ranking, which originally included 147 courses, but is now about to number 150, one for each playing of the Open Championship, um, is not the consensus of a panel. It is all Rand Morissette's. And it's notable for a couple of reasons. Um, although it includes many of the same courses that appear on everyone in the magazines, the two magazines, top 100 lists, uh, 70 of which from America, the rest from around the globe, it excludes the following courses, Pine Valley, Augusta National, Cypress Point, Seminole, Shinnecock Hills, Oakmont, and Wingfoot. That's quite a list of exclusions. Why don't they make it? Partly because they don't fulfill Rand's criteria, uh, a, a kinder, gentler golf course. Uh, Rand had his heart, I think, in precisely the right place when he established the criteria for his list. And I can just read them to you real quickly. There are eight of them. It's a course that provides engaging puzzles to solve, beats one which does not. A course where the ball is encouraged to run, beats one where it is not. A course where you can carry your own bag at any time, beats one where you cannot. A course where you can play quickly while walking, beats one where you cannot. A course you can enjoy at all ages, beats one you cannot. A course with understated maintenance practices beats one with conspicuous greenskeeping. A club that emphasizes the simple game of golf beats one which pursues the trappings of status. And of course you wanna play again and again beats one you only wish to play annually. Now these are his eight commandments. And, uh, and I, see, I think they say a few things. They say uh, a sense of elation beats frustration when you play. A course that's inviting beats one that's intimidating. One that's natural beats one that's manicured. One that uh, prizes modesty is better than one that prizes pretension. Uh, wide beats long. Walking beats riding. A ground attack beats artillery practice. And a resourceful recovery shot beats ball hunting. I couldn't agree more with that. Uh, I just hope that... Uh, and I would recommend that people take a look at this list. Uh, I'm not gonna tell you what's in the top 10, but I can guarantee you they're all courses you'd love to play. 
and just go to you know golfclubatlas.com and you'll find the full list. And uh, let's just hope that these current forces of, of kindness and gentleness uh, continue to prevail. And uh, what the future brings is more such courses and clubs that really embrace and celebrate the simple virtues of the game. That's it. <laughs> it's another conversation. I'm glad that you introduced this uh, 147 custodians list to our listeners and readers because it's it's one that I was not familiar with before your column either, and it's a different way to look uh, at a at how you rank courses. Um, I'm I'm interested because I know both of you guys were have been involved in in course rankings, and how did that process sort of evolve? Like what factors played into a, a course's ranking and and making one of these lists, and and how did that change over the years for? Well, I, I can t take it from the start of the golf magazine list and then I'll lateral to Joe. When we started uh, back and I think it was 79, but it might have been 77, 78. Anyway, uh, it was a purely a, uh, a marketing gimmick, as was Golf Digest 10 years earlier. And we got out there because they got out there. They were selling magazines with lists. Everybody loves lists. So I said, all right, we've got to do something different. They do the, the top 100 in the U.S. We'll do the top 100 in the world. We actually began with the top 50 in the world. And um, again, in contrast to the way they did it, which was very uh, sort of uh, regimented and um, with, a, I think they had 10 criteria then and they asked each of their, there are many panelists to rate each of the criteria. I think it was one, one to 10 and they added it all up and did the math and, uh, we decided to go entirely different direction and limit the panel to 100 people and trust their subjective views, not give them any hard and fast direction. Uh, these were people who had all played hundreds of golf courses, the best courses in the world. We trusted them to define greatness any way they wanted and uh, asked them to give a vote to each of the courses they played. They had to have played some minimum number I forget, Joe may be able to correct me, but it's 200 or 300, 400 course, whatever it was. But uh, we asked them to rate each of the courses with a, a letter grade. A was top 10 in the world, B top 50, C top 100, D top 200, and I think we gave an F that didn't belong on the ballot. And that translated as it does in academics to a grade point average. And everybody, sent in their ratings. We computed the grade point averages and uh, the course with the highest grade point average became number one. It's interesting little side, side light, the first iteration of the list, uh, these hundred ballots came in and incredibly after taking the uh, decimal points out as far as they could go, we had a, a two-way tie for first place. And um, it was between Pebble Beach and Muirfield. And um, I had ranked Pebble Beach higher than Muirfield, I believe. I think I gave Muirfield. I've never been a huge fan of Muirfield. 50, top 50, yes. Top 10, no. And given Pebble Beach a, a, an A. And I think at that moment, we, I said, we can't have a tie. This is no fun. We have to have a number one course. So I think it, in the only uh, instance of chicanery I knew of while I was doing the panel, I changed my ballot and I gave Muirfield an, uh, an A and Pebble Beach a B and we had a top one, uh, number one in the world. And uh, so that's how it, it all began. I sort of ran the thing for a couple of years and then we had this young Cornell student who was interested in taking it over. His name was Tom Doak. He had been writing for the magazine for a few years and uh, he very um, assiduously threw himself into this and kept uh, a, an Excel, not Excel, we call it Excel sheet now. He kept it just on graph paper. He, uh, he kept the scores and really ran the thing just as we did until um, he designed Pacific Dunes and then had a conflict of interest. So <laughs> we, we fired him and it's gone on from there. Joe, okay, over to you. <laughs> 
Wow. Um, well, you know, uh, Al, George answered your question um, properly in placing so much of the emphasis on why golf courses got tougher and tougher uh, based on rankings. And back in those days, there were so many golf courses being built, but just like the equipment industry, it was a bit of an arms race. It was um, a, a chest thumping, my course is harder than yours and more spectacular. And as slope came into being, it was how high is our course rating? How high is the slope number? How fast are our greens? And it was just kind of a, you know, a show of force, basically. But that's what seemed to work, you know, with getting magazines' attention. Um, both for story purposes, you wanted the most spectacular photo that you could find, which usually involved um, hazards and extra hazards or extraordinary hazards on a given golf hole. And, you know, after that, in trying to make a splash in the rankings, um, again, it's only one aspect of why golf courses continue to get tougher and tougher. And Pete Dye might have been, you know, a culprit uh, along with Dean Beeman, but so was Jack Nicholas. Uh, and he built courses that time and time again were every bit as tough or tougher uh, than what Pete did. I don't think Jack's courses were as visually intimidating as Pete's were, but they played every bit as tough. So I think part of this was when Golf Digest decided that they were going to use seven or so criteria for its panelists to evaluate a given golf course. And all along, um, one of their categories in terms of, quote, greatness was resistance to scoring. Well, if you're going to be considered for the top 100 list, I guess you better get a big number in resistance to scoring. Another criteria that uh, was part of their seven or so was memorability you know, was gauging each hole and kind of going through that exercise. And so if you had a little stretch of three to four ordinary holes, that was taboo. That was a no-no. You know, in, in the digest way of thinking back then, it was every hole had to be a rip snorter and, and have, you know, difficulty and hazard value and, and things like that. So that that is all part of what happened, and everything George expressed in his column uh, was was right on, um, well reasoned, well stated, uh, and and I, I kind of pinpoint the recession of two thousand and eight, two thousand and nine, when we really began to scale back. Now Tom Doak and others, uh, the minimalist Bill Core and Ben Crenshaw had began to make a style of golf course design more in vogue, more popular again, emphasizing width and the running game, the ground game. And all of that was very refreshing. Generally, you had to have the right site to be able to do that, but they did. They found sites that could accommodate that, and people kind of fell in love with that all over again superintendents finally started to stop watering and overwatering so much and allow for some roll of the ball. But the recession of 08, 09, I think finally people began to take stock and say, what kind of fun am I having in my golf round? And so many of the golf courses that had been built in the previous 10 to 25 years were just beatdowns. And as George pointed out, a place that you thought would be fun to play once a year, as opposed to every day. But now, 2008, 2009, 2010, man, the money's gone. Um, the optimism's gone in a, in a sense at that point. When we go out to play golf, uh, we, we wanna have fun. We wanna have fun with our pals and be entertained. And maybe that meant 
not spending five and a quarter hours and looking for golf balls on every hole and maybe finding a golf course that flattered your game a little bit. And I think out of that came a renewed appreciation for the fun factor as part of golf. Part of that fun is a thinking person's test. And that means angles. And that means accommodating the role of the ball to figure out where you want to land it, where it's going to wind up. So, you know, since, since that time, uh, nowhere near as many golf courses being built, but the ones that are, I think, for the large part, embrace just what George has stated that makes great golf courses really so special. It's not to take away from some of Pete and Jack's, you know, most severe tests, because that's a greatness all its own, but it's a greatness like going to that fancy French restaurant for your anniversary dinner, as opposed to the diner right down the road that does everything well, reasonably priced, and you could go back to it every day or at least once a week. Yeah, and that's, yeah, yeah. good point. I, I, in 2020 hindsight, I think there might have been one other uh, um, element in that per perfect storm on both ends. Uh, back in the late 80s, and that's the demographics, the baby boomers. You know, the boomers back in the 80s were this hail hardy, go get them uh, group. And they were pro probably as much a spur to this, you know, make me a, a hard championship golf course as anyone. And now they're, they're twice that age. They're old. They've lost their skill. They've lost their distance. And yet they still have purchasing power and clout. And I think not maybe a huge role, but I think that sensibility has, has played a role in the uh, call for, for, for more lenient golf courses. That's where we are today, where you see a lot of the new courses or even the restorations happening are emphasizing playability. And like you said, Pete Dye comes around with TPC Sawgrass and you're talking about because they're getting these this kind of um, attention for being difficult, courses are starting to be intentionally built to be challenging. Whereas today, I think they're a lot of courses are intentionally built to not necessarily be easy, but like Rand Morissette says, provide engaging puzzles uh, to where you have a lot of width. But if you're going to hit it out and just because there's fairway 30 yards right of the intended target line, that doesn't necessarily make it an easier golf hole. And then now you've got to attack some other challenge that's presented itself. Um, and I'll, I'll run through, I know you said you, you didn't say the top 10 on the 147 custodians, but I'll run through them real quick for the sake of anyone who's interested, who may be driving in the car and, and not able to look at it. But uh, so I'll start at 10. Uh, number 10 is North Barrick West, nine Oakland Hills South, eight Valley Bunyan Old, Seven Prestwick, six Royal County Down, number one, five is Sand Hills, four is the old course, three Barn Boogle Dunes, two National Golf Links of America, and one Royal Melbourne West. So there you go. And I know there's there's plenty of other examples. Um, George, your Yeamans Hall friendly club is number 32 on that list. Mm. Uh and anyone who wants to see what else is part of the list can go again to golfclubatlas.com and click on the 147 custodians tab. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And maybe that leads us into our maybe another discussion we're going to have about the winter 2023 issue being that Royal Melbourne, the West 
course, is number one on Rand's list. It also tops Joe's list as the subject of his column. So, Joe, would you mind introducing your your column for Paragon from this issue? Well, uh, this issue's Paragon, in uh, which we do talk about a given virtue uh, in the game of golf that helps define the sport, the golf courses that we love, and we love them for different reasons. And, um, you know, we've done, uh, whether it's <laughs> meanest greens, because anybody, you know, who can handle a putter can at least help to cope with, you know, even the hardest putting greens. Um, but the topic that rolled around this time was boldest bunkers. And, uh, you know, the first thing I had to do was figure out what, what exactly does that mean? You know, we, we can all kind of talk about toughest courses and see where the USGA and, and the local committees have, have rated them. Um, but what does it mean by boldest bunkers? That's pretty subjective. And so I, I tried to define it um, for myself uh, before I went about selecting what the winner would be and, and maybe three runners up. Uh, it's funny when we think about bunkers and bunkering. And one of the very first things I think about when I think about a given golf course, and we think about bunkers either individually or collectively that have registered the strongest in our minds over the years. And so sometimes they're just Oakmont, which is one of my selections for boldest bunkering because you think of that golf course without a single water hazard, you just think bunkers and, and greens and they're both terrifying. But you also think of so many different other kinds of bunkers uh, like Royal County Down, uh, which terrorize in their own way, those eye, eyelash bunkers, eyebrow bunkers with the whiskers that come out. So it's not enough that you're in, that you're in a bunker, it's that you've got this little fescuey, fringy thing that you've got to get through um, that's complicating matters. Uh, so, okay, by bold, I used to think about San Francisco Golf Club, some of the most attractive bunkers I ever saw as a young man, just with their shaping, the way they're placed around the golf course, that both aesthetically and strategically, but okay, uh, they're gorgeous in my mind, and you're so happy you're out at San Francisco Golf Club that, you know, you might tend to overrate things anyway. But no, uh, even all these years later, uh, I find them just a glorious set of bunkers. So then finally, what is bold? And I had to come down to the idea that boldness in bunkering were bunkers that you could you could see. So they had to have a visual impact right away, which eliminated a fair number of wonderful links courses across the pond where obscured bunkers or even blind bunkers uh, typically rule the day. So there had to be elements of artistic you know, merit that registered, uh, that they had to be placed in such a way that they influenced play. And I don't know, it was just that combination of art and science that said, well, this is what makes for bold. And the more I researched and thought about sandbelt bunkers and how much they're loved by such a wide variety of talented people in golf, maybe it came down to Royal Melbourne, say, versus Kingston Heath. But Royal Melbourne gives you a little more room to play. There's a little more strategy involved at Royal Melbourne than there is at Kingston Heath. Uh, the common denominator is that they were designed by Alistair McKenzie, at least those bunkers. And when it came time for people such as Tiger Woods, Nick Faldo, and yes, Tom Doak, to discuss those bunkers and what they demanded of the player both the highly skilled player and the average golfer that became my number one pick because they were beautifully sculpted from an artistic standpoint. There was variety in them, but some of them were gigantic. And then 
you could not avoid dealing with all these bunkers uh, on virtually every hole and yet in proper proportion for the entire round. So Royal Melbourne, that wound up my pick on the, the West course, especially. Yeah, it's hard to disagree with that. Given your criteria, I, I really uh, can't disagree with that at all. Though it would not have been, it would not have come to my mind quickly. Um, I thought the other, or two of the other three you listed, those being uh, Oakmont, Pine Valley, and Riviera. Uh, Oakmont and Pine Valley, clearly, yeah. Uh, you've already made the case for Oakmont. Uh, Pine Valley, any place where they don't rake the bunkers is pretty <laughs> bold move. <laughs> I'd have to agree with that. Um, and Riviera, I guess similar to Royal Melbourne, many of the aesthetics. And uh, as you, you point out, that bold bunker at the sixth hole in the middle of the green is uh, quite a statement. Um, the, the other two courses that jumped to my mind were the old course at St. Andrews. And I, I get your point about it being a little bit more low-lying and... Um, you know, but for instance, the, the 12th hole where you don't see those half dozen bunkers as you stand on the tee. I mean, bunkers that hide are not bold bunkers. So I get that point. Um, but, you know, you've got some pretty famous ones over there, too. And I, I sense that a good candidate for most bold bunkering might be the redesigned Seminole. I haven't been there, but from the photographs I've seen, uh, what uh, Crenshaw and Core did there has really expanded the sandy areas. Correct me if I'm wrong, but that looks like a, a, a long day in the sandbox to me. Yeah, the splashes of sand, the natural sand that were yeah. restored, you know, by that, uh, and and then the formal bunkers, which um, you know was was funny because uh, of course they were a Donald Ross masterpiece, but Dick Wilson, who famously came along with some other fabulous Florida courses, which are not as popular anymore. But Dick Wilson kind of redid the bunkering there in the late 1940s. Pete Dye pointed that out. And, uh, you know, I remember as a kid kind of looking and analyzing and saying, you know, these, these actually look more like Dick Wilson bunkers than Donald Ross mm. before I knew that. But, yeah, sand as an element with the wind going on and being beachside. Um the more I sat and listened to your thoughts, George, about the old course at St. Andrews, I, I'm even more convinced um, I should have maybe made a slot for St. Andrews because when I think of, when I, I mean, think of Hill and Strath at 11, mm -hmm. uh, the principal's nose complex. Right. Um, obviously, hell at 14 and the road at 17 are among the boldest bunkers on the planet. But maybe then if I defaulted to my original criteria that said visual impact for boldness, I say, okay, that's, that's why I left St. Andrews off. You but, don't uh, see hell until you're in it. That's it. <laughs> but maybe, there you that's, go. maybe that's why it's so bold. How bold of you to not even tell me that you're there. <laughs> Brash. Yeah. <laughs> there you go, Al. You know, I don't, I'm, don't claim to be an expert on this topic, but the one that jumped to my mind, I don't know if it crossed yours either, was uh, Harbortown. And some of the bunkers out there, I, immediately I think of um, the seventh hole is completely surrounded by sand and some trees. The ninth hole has those ellipses bunkers right behind it, one, two, three circular bunkers. And then I uh, go to pretty opposite ends of the spectrum, the 13th hole, at Harbortown has that horseshoe bunker in front, followed by the 14th. There's a very small, one of the, the smallest bunkers you'll see on any golf course anywhere, um, right behind that par three green. So a lot of signature style Pete Dye bunkers there that uh, on a placement golf course have can have a lot of effect if you end up in the wrong place. Well, Pete Dye certainly should get credit for boldness in every design feature um, other than maybe the contouring of his greens. I had one very respected architect as I was researching this. Uh, the first course that came to his mind on this topic was TPC Sawgrass. 
which has a phenomenal variety of bunkers. I think in the case of Pete Dye, though, um, as much as he admired this guy and that guy, a lot of times he came right back to Seth Rayner. And Seth Rayner and, and that style, even though he had a, an engineered uh, style about it, they were grass faces, generally speaking, flat sand grass faces. Uh, Donald Ross did a lot of flat sand, flat bottom bunkers with grass faces. Mm-hmm. And a- as well positioned as they might be, well intended as they might be, they don't have quite the visual effect that Mackenzie and George Thomas's bunkers had with the swales and lobes and flashing of sand, even that mm-hmm. Trent Jones Sr. did so well. So again, boldness being a subjective term, um, kudos to the guys that perfected the art of the the, the flat sand bunkers with the grass faces, but they don't register quite so quickly uh, as as these the other breed. Man, we're getting deep into architecture here, aren't we? <laughs> In the weeds. <laughs> well, how about that for a transition too? Because we have just started uh, in this winter 2023 issue. Uh, we've welcomed uh, Jeff Shackelford on as a columnist at Lynx. And, you know, uh, the stars aligning here. Uh, Jeff's column is all about golf architecture getting its due and people talking about it. And But what is that reason that it's become so interesting? Uh, George, just what does it mean to have Jeff on with us? And then what did you get out of his column in this issue? Yeah, well, I think we're very lucky to have him, and, it, and we really couldn't pick uh, someone who is better suited uh, to the Lynx uh, uh, content bailiwick. I mean, he's done uh, some golf course architecture himself, a fair number of golf courses, e- either in collaboration with others and renovations. Um, he's been writing about the game for probably a quarter century, does a podcast, he's a a great aggregator of content. A lot of people use Jeff's uh, website as their uh, source of information, what's going on in the game of golf. Um, and, and he really has a passion for it. So um, as I said, I think we're very lucky to have him. I think he has uh, a lot of uh, enthusiasm and passion for his subject. And he, I know he's uh, raring to go with us. He's already got a great idea for his uh, column in the spring, which he wouldn't divulge, but he said, it has something to do with Augusta being uh, kind of exceptional and being able to get away with things that no other entity in the game can get away with. So I'll wet readers' uh, appetites with that. But uh, yeah, he, his first column, I think, relates to a book he's uh, coming out, uh, which I, I think he's calling it Golf Architecture for Normal People or something like that. But um, And it's not unlike what I was talking about, uh, the fact that uh, architecture now is having sort of a moment. Um, and he attributes it to a number of uh, factors. The you know exposure to getting on television, uh, the, um, the drone photography, which I, I think is absolutely true. Uh, they've really changed the way it's presented, not only on, on the telecasts, but in our magazines and the videos you see now uh, on the web. Um, and his last uh, point was that um, people want more fun in their golf courses, which is exactly what I was talking about. People are, are kind of getting into it more, uh, enjoying the game and in all of its aspects and appreciating golf course architecture. Anything? I know, Joe, you had a chance to read Jeff's column. Anything else? Uh, interest you about his points on why it's become such a popular topic in golf? Yeah, um, I was really intrigued because I've been writing about architecture and other things, but I've been writing about architecture for more than 30 years and uh, evaluating golf courses uh, as a ranking panelist for, you know, uh, several years before that. I was really intrigued with the premise and came away, I mean, <laughs> beaming with the execution. I thought this was a terrific piece, a great way to launch 
uh, Jeff's role at Lynx Magazine. And I think what captured my attention most about architecture getting its due, as, as you guys called the piece, when I got into the business of writing about design and so forth, architecture was just about, a, it was like a subset of travel and courses. And it was for the tiniest group of enthusiasts. All the magazine surveys that we did, and there weren't many outlets 30 years ago, but all the surveys that came back, it was instruction was first, and then the pro game and equipment, and then eventually you'd finally get to travel. Okay, so the numbers for a generalist magazine were, were on the low side, but the surveys also revealed that people who did pay attention to travel were passionate about it. And that's why a Lynx magazine has succeeded and survived for this long because people do wanna read about golf courses and where to go and where to buy and where to stay and where to play. Um, and then architecture was still a subset of that. And I think what I got most, what really resonated with me was the rise of social media and the digital age in terms of the exchange of ideas and people being able to talk to each other and, oh, I, did you play here? And it's so fascinating. And bang, post four photos of just what you're talking about that you saw at this golf course. Tweet it, put it on Instagram, and then people can debate it. And all of a sudden, this little tiny subset of architecture fans and architecture discussions has morphed into a regular way of expressing about a given golf course and encouraged a very healthy debate. I think, unfortunately, some of the louder voices have drowned out some of the ones, uh, for instance, the mid-century golf and, and beyond. Um, some of the best golf courses of Robert Trent Jones Sr. going into Tom Fazio uh, through the 90s uh, as if that's not, you know, great architecture uh, any longer. And I will disagree. I think there's a best of breed in all of that. It's all personal preference. It's, uh, as my brother-in-law would say, it's all ice cream. It's all good. It's just what brand do you like and what flavor do you like? But no question, all of this talk and renewed interest in architecture has still been healthy for golf as golf developers and owners see, yeah, people do wanna have more fun in their experience. And things like hazard placement, number of hazards, the ground game, um, that has to enter into the equation. And so I think that dovetails a little bit with what George's column was, but um, now I'm clapping my hands for, uh, for what Jeff produced with his first column. You know, it, it's interesting if you go back well, let's say 40 years now, 45 years. And if you were to ask someone, a member at a really almost any private club, who designed your golf course? They wouldn't be able to tell you. There, there was really no awareness of golf course architects, let alone architecture, um, back in the 1970s, late 70s, early 80s. And it uh, has slowly come along and I think the internet has done a lot to with this exchange of ideas but uh, yeah Jeff's right it's it's having a moment now yeah you guys are both so right I mean social media and drone photography and videography has done such a wonderful job of making this interesting for people I think uh, to be able to see some of the stuff and then hear people talk about it and, and understand that when you look at a golf course, uh, whereas you had to read a, a book or in sort of a textbook style format where you're trying to, to learn what each of these things are. Now you're, you can hear people talk about it. You can visually look at it yourself. And so that's, I, at least for me has played a big role, uh, in, yeah, again, uh, 40 years ago, there weren't 10 books on golf course architecture. Now there must be 100 or more. It's incredible how it's expanded. Yeah. yeah by happenstance and in, in sort of a, a twilight zone type of moment here uh, in, in terms of our features in the winter 2023 
issue. Uh, one of them is is one I did on on golf podcasts, and as we mentioned, this podcast among many that explain and have something to do with this interest and attention being paid to golf course architecture. There's a lot out there. I give you in that column ten that you should be listening to, outside of this one, of course. Uh, other features in this issue coming up. Uh, we talk Naples golf, Naples, Florida, uh, the best public and private courses you can play down at the southern tip of the state of Florida. Uh, we talk about Bill Corr and Ben Crenshaw's uh, work. Is this their prime of their careers uh, or have we seen the prime of their careers yet as they continue to build and be consulted on golf courses all over the world? Uh, and then we go back and Jim Frank tells us uh, to the best of his ability, the oldest golf course in each U.S. state. So we have four unique features all covering a different spectrum uh, in the golf world. Um, I won't go through the rest of the lineup. You'll have to subscribe and read the magazine yourself uh, to find out what's in our top 10, for example, uh, what we uh reveal as our first peak course as a hint it is a core and crenshaw opening as well but um anything else to say about the issue coming up from our editor george pepper uh no just interestingly we talked about core and crenshaw their <clears throat> best may be ahead of them in their busiest time uh, i'm sure you saw the uh news that stream song core and crenshaw are going to do a little course for them called the chain i think a short course so and we, we didn't even have that one among the several courses in their pipeline. So just uh, further evidence. The other thing I would say to you is I, I think I should applaud us for even recognizing there are any other podcasts other than this one. When I was at Golf Magazine, as far as our readers knew, there were no other magazines. We never mentioned Golf Digest. <laughs> And Golf Digest never mentioned us. So I think we've all become uh, a lot more uh, broad-minded, and that's good. It was uh, certainly a point of kind of struggle and contention about the whole idea of doing a piece on golf podcasts to begin with and whether or not we we wanted to go there. But yeah, I'll, I'll borrow a line from uh, when I interviewed uh, Riggs from Barstool Golf, and he used an anecdote that it's not necessarily like there's a, a pie and everyone just gets a certain piece. It's the more that this content availability grows, the bigger the pie gets and the more that people get interested in golf, the, the better. So, um, yeah, you should still start here for your, your podcast <laughs> needs, but there are some good ones out there too. Uh, gentlemen, I appreciate both of your time today. Uh, it's been a pleasure as always to work through another issue of links with you. Uh, on to the next one and the next conversation. We'll look forward to it. Very good, Al. Thanks a lot. Good to see you, George. You too, Thanks, Joe. guys.